What's up, everybody? Great to see you guys. Always a thrill for me to be here on weekend with you guys. Man, I love the crossing. Any opportunity I get to come, I, I, I jump at that. want to welcome our Southeast Campus. And those of you that might be joining us online as well, glad you guys are hanging with us. It's cool that we get to do it together. And, uh, man, I just got back from Mexico. And I got to tell you, you need to be proud of, of those men that are down there. They're so cool. I mean, I mean 100 guys, uh, we threw up seven houses in two days. It's a lot of work and a whole lot of Advil as well. Oh, man, those are some of the coolest men on the planet. And it was just so fun seeing them uh, humbly uh, work hard and just bring hope to some people that really need some hope. And so thanks for investing in all of them and letting them go. And uh, you're going to hear some great stories when they all come back. Well, we are in this series uh, where we're talking about it's okay uh, to bring your, bring your doubts. And so we're trying to unpack some questions that uh, probably all of us have wrestled with at least one point uh, in, in our life. Uh, for, for instance, I think a lot of us have kind of wrestled to fill in this blank. And I don't know how for sure you would fill in the blank uh, of Jesus is. You know, maybe, maybe you would fill it in with uh, Jesus is a really good guy. Or maybe you'd fill it in with Jesus is a great teacher. Or Jesus is a good motivational speaker. Or, or maybe you would fill in the blank by saying, Jesus is kind. He's compassionate. Kind of like a male version of Mother Teresa. Some of us might fill in the blank by saying, Jesus is my rescuer. Or Jesus is changing my life. Or if you're in recovery, you might even say, Jesus is my higher power. Or if you're an old Doobie Brothers fan, you may say, Jesus is just all right with me. Uh, I saw some guy post this, a little bit cynical but honest. He said, Jesus is a mythical figure that some believe manifests himself in the form of magic crackers. Talking about communion. Well, maybe you have trouble filling in this blank. And maybe you're like I used to be. And you've got all kinds of questions about who Jesus really is. I think I might have told you last time I was with you, I'm, I'm doing a little Bible study. In fact, I'll do it tomorrow morning uh, in, over in Ventura with a bunch of guys. Um, just, we're just going verse by verse to the Gospel of John. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four chapters, first four books of the New Testament of the Bible, all about the life of Jesus. And all these guys, most of them anyway, have never read the Bible in their life. And it is so fun just going verse by verse. So they, they got all kinds of questions. And they got all kinds of doubts and confusion. So we thought a good place to start would just look at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Jesus' closest friend, a, a guy named John. And so we've just been going verse by verse through John. I think we're in chapter 19 uh, tomorrow. But, but John starts his account by going way back, like even way back before Bethlehem. He goes all the way back to the very beginning and talking about Jesus, whom, whom he refers to as the eternal word, this is what he writes about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word, yeah, He became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, just full of grace 
and truth. So John begins his gospel by filling in this blank with Jesus is the everlasting word. That Jesus is the eternal God. That Jesus is the one who created this whole universe. That Jesus is the light of the world. That Jesus is the Son of God who moved into our neighborhood and came full of grace and truth. That's how he starts this book of good news. Now I want you to see how John closes his book. In chapter 21 he says, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. So I'm not making this up because Jesus did many other things as well. I mean, if, if you were, every one of them were written down, I, I suppose not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that could be written. He's just saying, I, I'm telling you guys, I saw so much. I heard so much. I don't have room to put in all the amazing stories that I could have included. I'm just telling you, there's no one, no one like Jesus. I don't know when you're the least cool. When are you the least cool? Anybody else like me is when you first wake up in the morning or you get awakened out of a deep sleep. I am so uncool when I get woke up. Uh, my eyes are just half open, all glazed over. My hair, when I used to have it, was sticking up. And I mean, it was just, I mean, I would suck. My fingers don't work. Nothing works in my body. When I first wake up, I am so uncool. Well, there's such a great story about Jesus and the guys. They're out in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up very, very quickly there on the Sea of Galilee. Still, they come up very quickly today because of the sea level and the mountains around it. Well, a storm comes up very quickly, and the guys start freaking out because the wind is rocking the boat. The waves are coming over the side. They're, swamp, they're swamping the boat, and these guys are professional fishermen, and they know they're in trouble, and they're freaking out, and, and they, they say, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Remember where Jesus was in the story? He was asleep at the bottom of the boat. So I would have loved to have been on that boat when they go down, they wake him up and say, Jesus, you got to get up here and help us bail water or something. Don't you care that we die? Come on, do something. I would have loved to have been there when Jesus got up and went, Ugh. peace, be still. <laughs> going back to bed. And the wind stopped. And the waves stopped. And it says in that story, when the storm was happening, the disciples were frightened. And then it says, after Jesus said that, it says, and they were terrified. <laughs> Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And John was on that boat. John was at the foot of the cross holding on to Jesus' mom when he died. John encountered the resurrected Jesus. He saw the nail scars in his hands and in his feet and the spear mark in his side. He watched Jesus ascend back into heaven. John had seen way too much and was absolutely unshakable in his faith. In John chapter 14, he writes down how Jesus' followers are kind of freaking out about what was unfolding around them. They had this ex extremely confusing dinner in an upper room right before Jesus to be, is to be arrested. And Jesus starts talking about things like his death and sacrifice and, 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 and bread and, and, and the blood and how it was going to be spilled out for the sins of the world. I mean, they're freaking out. They don't know what's going on. And he tries to calm down their hearts. And he tells them, listen, guys, I'm, I'm, don't, don't be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's going to be in my father's house, and you know the way. And one of them goes, uh, yeah, we don't know the way. We really don't know the way. How do we get there? And Jesus responds with these famous words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father 
except through me. I'm the way to eternal life. I am the, I am the life. And, and just to help you understand when people challenge you saying, no, 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 this is right and this is wrong, just let them know that I am the truth. He didn't say, guys, I am like one of many ways. Or I hold some knowledge for, for life. Or I, I know, you know some truth. Or I point to the truth. Or I always tell the truth. Or I, I am a prophet of truth. He doesn't say that truth is a religion. He doesn't say that truth is a ritual or a set of rules and regulations. He says, I am the truth. And while the religions of the world are full of prophets who claim to speak on behalf of God, Jesus claims something totally different about himself. He claims to be the truth of God. Jesus doesn't just tell us some truths about God. He is the ultimate expression of God because he is God. A lot of people ask the question, what's what's God like? Maybe you've asked that. Man, I, I certainly did for a long, long time. I think I might have told you before, I grew up with such a skewed perspective of what God was like. I thought God was just mad at me. I thought he was ticked at me, disappointed at me, disgusted by me. I kind of viewed God as this sort of a, a sadistic teacher who took great delight in taking out his giant red pen and marking up my test score. Like, this is wrong. This is wrong. Bro, you are so stupid. Big fat F for you. And man, it took me a while to get an accurate picture of what God was really like. And you know when it started for me? It's when I started doing what we're doing on Monday mornings with those guys in Ventura. I started looking at the life of Jesus. I mean, if you want to know what God is like, start looking at the life of Jesus. If you want to know the truth of God's character, take a look at Jesus and notice the way he stands up for the underdog and the way he reaches out for the lonely and the way he stands up for kids and he hates injustice. Look at the way that he just searches for the lost and embraces forgotten people and he comforts the sick and the grieving. Check out the incredible wisdom that he has for everyday living and the grace he dispenses for all of us who screw that up. You want all the truth about God's character? Just start looking at the life of Jesus. I mean, John says in, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one's seen the Father. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart and has made him known. We have three incredible kids. Uh, some of you know Jody Hickerson, who comes over here and teaches occasionally. That's our kid. Uh, I got two sons also, Derek and Drew. Uh, some guy told me recently, he said, You know what, bro? It's kind of cool. All three of your kids got a piece of your passions, except for Derek is a much better musician. And Drew is a much better athlete, and Jody is a much better preacher. And he's right on all three accounts. But my youngest son, Drew, uh, saw a picture of me when I was in my 20s the other day. And he said, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. I mean, this is scary how much I look like you. I said, dude, it gets scarier. Trust me. It just, it just does. Now, this is certainly not a comparison, or not, probably not even a good illustration. But I say that to say this. Jesus looks exactly, exactly like his father. Hebrews 1.3 says the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1 fills in this blank by saying Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is the preexistent creator of everything. Jesus is God in all of his fullness. Right after Jesus tells his followers that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he says this, if you, if you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. You see, a lot of people would fill in this blank saying Jesus is 
a really good teacher. But gang, he couldn't be just that. Because no really good teacher would claim to be the truth. No one in their right mind would claim to be God if he wasn't. So either Jesus is conning billions of people who believe a lie, or he was absolutely crazy. Or he is the truth. Now, I know that you may not be totally convinced yet. It took me a while, too. I get it. And you need to know this is a super, self place, super, super safe place where you can bring your doubts and your skepticism and your honest questions. This is a safe and accepting place full of a bunch of people who have been on the exact same journey as you. And we can help point you to some helpful resources that might help you on your journey to get to know God better. But you need to know this. God loves you very, very deeply. And God is extremely patient. And he says, listen, if you'll just seek me with all your heart, and if you'll do that like humbly and earnestly, you're going to find me. You're going to find me. So I'd just like to offer with the time I, I got some compelling evidence that has convinced me that Jesus is who he says that he is. And this has been evidence that really has satisfied uh, my head and, and my heart. If I were in a courtroom, I would mark the first one, Exhibit A, and I would just call it the historical bibliographical Evidence. So this is a little bit heady, but historians say, ask, what, what did the, those contemporaries outside of the author say about the accuracy of their writings? How does historical and archaeological evidences line up? They use what they call the bibliographical test, which assesses how accurate our modern copies are to the original writings. They compare them against other manuscripts and quotations from manuscripts from outside of them. Now, if you've ever uh, you know, been a freshman in college, some professor probably assigned you, probably over spring break, to read the writings of Plato and Aristotle, right? Now, when you read the writings of Plato and Aristotle, did you ever doubt the accuracy of those documents? Did you ever say, is that really what Plato said? Is that really what Aristotle said? I mean, probably not. I mean, everybody just accepts them at face value as being an accurate representation of what the authors originally wrote, and nobody questions the reliability, the historicity, or the accuracy of the transmission of those documents through the centuries. But did you know that we have only seven copies of ancient manuscripts of Plato to study and five copies of Aristotle to study and compare and determine the accuracy and the transmission quality throughout the years? Now, how many copies of the ancient manuscripts would, you, would, you, would, it, would it take to convince you that the New Testament was accurate as well? There are a total of 12 pieces of manuscripts for Plato and Aristotle. So what if I said we had 24? Would that convince you that this is, this is accurate? Would you, would you say that you know, you know, twice as many would be enough to convince me of this bibliographical test? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could say, well, you know what, there's 120 like 10 times more manuscript evidence than we have for Plato and Aristotle. Or better yet, if we were to say like 1,200, we got 1,200. That would be 100 times more manuscript evidence than Plato or Aristotle. Would that help you to know that? Well, let me tell you this. What if I told you there were 13,000 different ancient manuscripts of the New Testament? That means we have over 1,000 times as much manuscript evidence in determining the accuracy of the New Testament writings than we do in determining the accuracy of the unquestioned writings. 
of Plato and Aristotle. So simply put, the Bible has no equal with respect to passing this historical test that confirm the reliability of the story of Jesus. There's something I would mark then exhibit B. This is what we might call the eyewitness testimony. My wife is addicted to Dateline. I mean, anybody else watch that show? You know, Dateline or 2020 or 48 Hours, those true crime stories. The way they set those things up. I mean, just absolutely crack me up. You know, it'll, you know, some B-roll will come on. It'll be like, it was a sleepy little town. <laughs> Two stoplights, general store, the smell of jasmine in the air. <laughs> of course, what happened was just a tragic accident. Or was it? <laughs> like, whoa, what? Just, they just cracked me up. But you don't, you don't have to watch Dateline to know that like a whole trial can turn on the validity of eyewitness testimony. You get an eyewitness, I mean, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get a conviction. And gang, there were these guys who were close to Jesus, hung with him every day for three years. Good men, noble men, normal men, honest men, with no need whatsoever to invent stories, who wrote things like this. Second Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, John writes over in 1 John, we, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. He said, come on, we, we're not making this up. We saw him. We walked with him, we ate with him, we cried with him, we laughed with him, we saw his calluses on his hands from working as a Palestinian carpenter, we hugged his rugged body, we watched him turn water into wine, we watched him feed 5,000 people with some kids like Lunchable, we watched him walk on water, we watched him make crooked legs straight and blinded eyes see, we watched him make leprosy totally disappear and dead men totally reappear and we were on that boat with him when he told creation and knock it off plus we saw him die and then we saw him come back from the grave there is no one like him he is who he says he was I mean think about this the disciples were so convinced that Jesus was who he says he was that he had and had risen from the dead that they gave their lives proclaiming his resurrection I mean history reveals that guys like Peter and Andrew, and Philip, and Simon the Zealot, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Bartholomew were all crucified themselves for their faith. Matthew and James, the brother of John, were put to death by the sword. Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. Jesus' closest friend, the guy we've been talking about, John, was dipped in hot oil, somehow survived it, and was banished to exile on a criminal's island called Patmos. The Apostle Paul was beheaded for his faith. Why? Because they had seen way too much. Them and many others were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, and they were willing to die for what they knew to be true. And this was big for me because nobody dies knowingly for a lie. 
you would think that somewhere along the way, someone would have broken ranks and said, okay, 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 please don't chop my head off. We're just making all this up. We're just trying to write a best-selling novel. But they don't. The eyewitness testimony to me was extremely compelling. But the evidence that continues to blow me away is what will this mark exhibit C, and we'll call it the fingerprint evidence. Did you know the Bible is primarily a love story? It's not primarily a history book. It's not, it, it's not a rule book. It's not a book of regulation. It's, it's a love story. You can pretty much sum this, the Bible up like this. God longs for a relationship with people like us, and people like us broke the relationship. So God moved throughout all of history to restore the broken relationship with people like us. That's pretty much the story of the Bible. And all the way through the pages of the Bible, it's he's coming. He's coming to restore. He's coming to restore. He's coming to make things right. There's a Savior. There's a Messiah who's coming. God himself is going to step into humanity, and this is the way it's going to be. Prophecy after detailed prophecy about his coming. And Jesus' fingerprints are all over the Bible. One of the most persuasive pieces of proof about the true identity of Jesus is the way that he and he alone fits the complex DNA profile. Now, since Vegas is kind of the city of odds and odds makers, let's just take a look at some odds. The odds of you getting the flu sometime this year, 1 in 10. That's a pretty good odd, right? The odds of your identity being stolen, this scared me when I read this, 1 in 33. The odds of you rolling snake eyes at a Vegas craps table, 1 in 36. The odds of you hitting a slot machine jackpot, 1 in 262,144. The odds of you becoming a billionaire, 1 in 790,000. The odds of you making it to the NBA, 1 in 6,864,000. The odds of me making it to the NBA go much, much higher than that. The odds of you becoming president, 1 in 10 million. The odds of dying in a vending machine accident, 1 in 112 million. The odds of meteorite landing on your house, 1 in 180 quadrillion. Let me ask you this, what are the odds that one person named Jesus could make all the claims he made and fulfill well over 300 detailed predictions about himself written hundreds and thousands of years before he ever showed up? I'm telling you, the Bible sets itself up for enormous failure by many of these early writers and prophets making bold predictions, detailed, about the coming Messiah. They said, this is the way he's going to be, this is what he's going to be like, and this is the way it's all going to go down. Thousands of years before Jesus ever walked this planet. There's a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner who's kind of famous for mathematic uh, calculations. He was a professor of mathematics and astronomy at Westmont College, and he conservatively calculated the probability of just eight of those prophecies about the coming Savior being fulfilled in the life of one man, Jesus. Again, there's over 300 prophecies about the promised one. But let's just look at just a few and the odds of them just coming true in one person, Jesus Christ. For instance, there's a prophecy he took that says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Over in Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament of the Bible, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. So Dr. Stoner took the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the time of his research, 
and divided it by the average population of the earth during the same period. And the odds that the Messiah would be born in that little town called Bethlehem is 2.8 in 10 to the 15th power. Pretty staggering odds. Then he took passages such as Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1, that talk about how there will be a voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist, who will proclaim, prepare the way of the Lord. In, in prophecies, again, written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up, like Zechariah 9, 9, they talk about how the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. In Zechariah 11, 12, 13, 13, 6, about how the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and then the betrayal money used to buy a potter's field. The odds of just that last part coming true in one man is one in 100,000. Passages like Psalm 22, which talk about the Messiah dying with his hands and his feet pierced. And prophecies like this amazing prophecy in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was born. I mean, check this out. See if this doesn't sound like the Jesus that you've heard of. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave 700 years before Jesus ever showed up so Dr. Stoner took just those eight prophecies and multiplied all the probabilities of those eight prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person and that probability of those eight is one in ten to the 17th power that is one in 100 quadrillion and keep in mind that Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. The chances of him fulfilling 16 prophecies rises to 1 in 10 to the 45th power. When you get to the total of 48 prophecies, the odds increase to 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And Jesus fulfilled over 300. I would say the fingerprint evidence is pretty overwhelming. When confronted with these stats, the skeptical side of me used to go to the argument, well, of course, Jesus knew. He purposely fulfilled the prophecies just to perpetuate the scam. But, but think about this. I and mean, there's no doubt that Jesus was aware of what had been written about the coming Messiah. For example, when he got ready to enter Jerusalem on, on his final week, he told his disciples to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, go find me a young colt, a young donkey, so I can ride, up, ride upon that 
that, that donkey. But think about it. Many of the prophecies concerning the Messiah could not be purposely pulled off, starting with the town he was born in. I mean, Jesus didn't say from the womb, hey, mom, I, I know you're really miserable, and I know you're like nine months pregnant, and we have you know, medical care here, but if we could get on a donkey and ride to Bethlehem over rough terrain, I know it's a long journey, but according to this, I really need to be born there. And plus, they got this state-of-the-art birthing stable anyway, so let's go, let's go to Bethlehem. Or the nature of his betrayal. Can you imagine pulling Judas aside and say, hey, Judas, you got a minute? Let's go over the plan. Make sure we got this right. You got the false witnesses lined up? Yeah, great. Check, check that off. If you could betray me for 30 pieces of silver, not 31, not 32, 30 pieces of silver, not a penny more because it's going to throw off the whole conspiracy. And if you could break my heart with a kiss, that would be like icing on the cake. And, or, or the manner of his death. The prophecy about his hands and his feet being pierced was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, and it was written before crucifixion was even thought of. The Jewish way of execution was stoning. So you fast forward a thousand years, and the Jews still used stoning as their method of execution. But since they had lost the power because of Roman rule to carry out their own death penalty, they were forced to take Jesus to the governor of Rome, Pilate, and that's how Jesus ended up being crucified, just like it said a thousand years before. And again, it wasn't Jesus asking, excuse me, I'm trying to make this whole thing work out. Could I choose a cross over stoning? And again, if you guys could whip me first, that would really help me out because that's the way it's supposed to go down. And while you're at it, could you mock me if you don't mind? Could you use spikes instead of ropes to hold me to the cross? And if you soldiers could like gamble for my clothes, that would really be great. And could you take care and not break any of my bones? And let's see, what else is on my list? Oh, yeah, I'm going to try my best to remember all those things that they said thousands of years ago that I'm supposed to utter from the cross. And apparently, according to those writers a thousand years ago, I'm going to get thirsty so when I do, could you make sure to give me vinegar to drink? Not water. Give me vinegar to drink. And when I die, I'm only going to need it for a few days. But could you make sure that I'm buried in a rich man's grave? Thanks, because I'm just trying to pull off all these prophecies. I had to ask myself, really? I mean, if you just gave me the fingerprint evidence alone, it would be overwhelming enough to convince me that Jesus is the promised one who came to restore the broken relationship with people like us. And gang, besides all this, he changed my life and the lives of trillions and trillions of people throughout the centuries. I'm telling you, sitting in this room right now are dramatic life change stories that you have no explanation for other than someone greater than you moved into your life and turned you inside out. That Monday morning Bible study I talk about, I look around that living room. So many of those guys just had an unexplainable life change. I look at Ross and I look at Terry and I look at Carlo and I look at Matt and Keith and Michael and Mark and Dan and Lee and even myself. And you can't explain their radical life change other than Jesus Christ, the one who came back from the dead, has resurrected us all. We have moved from addicted to free. From self-centered to other-centered, from arrogant to humble, from materialistic to generous, from angry to kind, full of anxiety to being full of peace. And I'm telling you, those guys in that living room tomorrow morning, like the disciples, they would die for their faith because they know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, God longs for a relationship with people like us. 
People like us broke that relationship, but God, out of his deep, deep love, moved throughout history to restore the broken relationship with people like us. I haven't read this in many years, but a friend of mine quoted this little poem one time when he was teaching at a junior high summer camp, like a middle school retreat, and I've never forgotten it, nor have I forgotten his response after he read this. The little thing is kind of silly. It was called, Mary Had a Little Pig. And this is the way it goes. Mary had a little pig, and it was white as snow. That is, when it had a bath, as you, of course, might know. But Mary had an awful time to keep that piggy clean, for he was just the dirtiest pig that one had ever seen. Washing, she'd scrub him till he'd squirm and squeal, as if he wanted her to know that this was an unfair deal. Then he'd play from morning, way up until the night, and most days he'd happen to sneak right out and lose himself from sight. So Mary thought and wondered what she could ever do. And so she figured out a plan, and then she carried it through. She took him to a doctor who put the pig to sleep. And then he took his heart right out, but not, of course, to keep. And then he took a little lamb and took his heart out too and put it in the little pig before the piggy knew. And when the piggy did awake, he had no more desire to wallow in the muck and mud and forever in the mire. And so you see, boys and girls, we need a new heart too. Just like the little piggy did, the old will never do. And when he got done, some seventh grade boy yelled out, Hey, what happened to the lamb? Yeah, right? What happened to the lamb? And my buddy, thinking very quickly, responded with the words of that prophecy we read in Isaiah 53. He goes, Oh, the lamb. Yeah, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we've been healed. And again, God has provided the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to restore the broken relationship with people like us. And today, maybe you're ready to fill in that blank by saying, you know what, Jesus is the Son of the living God. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is going to be the leader of my life. He's going to be the forgiver of my sins. I invite you to Bow your heads. Let's just pray a little prayer right now. You know, right now, you can just invite him to be in your life. You can choose to follow the one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. The God who made you the object of his radical love wants to give you a new heart, new life. So maybe today is the day you just kind of let go of your skepticism. You know, not saying you don't have a whole bunch more to learn, not saying you don't have a whole lot more questions, but maybe you say, I, I do believe this, that Jesus loved me enough to lay down his life for me. I believe that he is the son of God, the promised one, the fingerprint evidence, all that stuff just overwhelming to me. He has to be who he said he was. I believe that he came back from the dead and I want to put my life in his hands and let him lead me from this point forward. Maybe you can just pray a prayer like this and God, I believe. Maybe that's all you need to pray. God, I believe. Maybe you just say to God, you know, I, it's not so much I have trouble believing in Jesus as God. God, it's just that I've been playing you for so long in my life that I'm not really ready to give that up. But today I am. And I'm laying that down. I want you to be God. And I want to follow you. And I want to do life your ways. And I want to become the hands and feet of Jesus like a bunch of guys in Mexico right now building houses for impoverished people. I want to be that. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life. 
If you prayed a prayer like that today, you can rest assured that God is coming into your life and you're going to learn more and more about Jesus. And your sin is forgiven and you start from this point forward to follow him. And we've got baptism coming up shortly and you can take advantage of that. So you know what, I want to, I want to just drive a stake down in my life and I want to plunge my past and I want to walk with him. Jesus, I'm so grateful somebody introduced you to me. You changed my perspective on what God was like. You changed my perspective on life, and you changed my life. And a lot of us in this place are super grateful for that. And so we pray in your name.